Cashback is not available on gas in New Jersey and Wisconsin. Hey, good morning. You're heading the airport, right? Yeah, thanks for checking. I like the car. How long have you been a rideshare driver? About three years now. I really enjoy it. Isn't it hard to make money these days with the price of gas being so high? Not for me. I use Upside, the free app that gives you cash back for every gallon of gas you buy. Wait a minute. Are you saying you actually get real money back when you get gas with the Upside app? Yep, I get real cash back every time I get gas. Does that actually add up to anything? I'll make around $200 to $300. Wow, that's serious extra cash. I'm downloading the Upside app now. Download the free Upside app now to earn real cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code CAR for an extra $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank account, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code CAR for a $0.25 a gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code CAR. You're listening to the Fade to Gray Network. We invite people of all backgrounds to share their stories. Their nuanced conversations and forward thinking and not taking ourselves too seriously. Everyone's story matters. Every voice is important. Life is polarizing. But not everything is black and white. Come join us as we fade to gray. Welcome back, Fade to Gray family, to another episode. We are talking today with Pete Enns, who is an American biblical scholar and theologian. He has also written several books, including The Evolution of Adam, which questions the belief that Adam was a historical figure. The Bible tells me so, why defending scripture has made us unable to read it, The Sin of Certainty, why God desires our trust more than our correct beliefs, and most recently, how the Bible actually works. A book about gaining wisdom from the Bible instead of answers. Please, everyone, welcome Dr. Pete Evans. Yeah. Hey, I'm so excited that you're here, Pete. Like, so excited. It's going to be weird Thanks, not so calling well. you doctor. We just had a health... You can if you want. We just had a health series where we yeah. actually had three doctors come and talk to us about different... like epidemics going on in America and things like that. And, uh, yeah. and obviously you've worked real hard for your education. So, you know, we want to respect you, but I mean, obviously you don't put off that persona, nothing that I ever heard you say, you don't refer to yourself that way. So I think we can maybe roll with this whole Pete thing. Yeah. Just, just my wife and kids. That's all. Maybe <laughs> I'll call me Pete. That's fine. <laughs> We're good. Speaking of uh, your kids, um, we had your daughter, Elizabeth, uh, Petters on on episode thirty four talking about anxiety in the church. Um, yeah. yeah, that was a great and, uh, episode. It yeah. was a joy. And honestly, I don't know if you remember it all, but three years ago, I actually met you at a conference in Tennessee, and um, mm-hmm. it was. Did you borrow money from me or something? <laughs> I, I well, <laughs> I was hoping you would forget that, but since you since you brought it up. <laughs> Damn, the bad Christian conference. That's the one. That's the one. That was yes. fun. That was a fun, fun weekend. But um, just everything you spoke about um, has had a lasting impact on me and kind of um, the whole buzzword of deconstruction. And honestly, some of the stuff that works you've done, things you've written, things you've said um, have given me hope and allowed me to like kind of go through some of the questioning and not, you know, have to abandon my faith altogether. And just recently started listening to so I'm not a big reader, but I got the audio book for um, the sin of certainty and listened to that a couple of weeks ago. Um, very, very mm. good. Um, it threw me off a little bit because I noticed that you write a lot like the way you speak, you know. And so I hear you talk a whole lot and listen to somebody else read your book. It really yeah, threw yeah. me off because he didn't have your same cadence, but you could tell it was right. you behind him. 
And yeah, but you couldn't tell like he got the jokes wrong because like, he said it in a certain way that it, at, the snark didn't come through. And so people think serious. So that didn't work. And that's why when the last book came out, I said, there's no way anybody, else, I didn't even like know what was happening. The first two books that, that I did with Harper one, but I said, I'm going to read this one. And they said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. I don't want somebody else to read my books. It's not right. So <laughs> it makes yeah, a big difference. Hopefully in the yeah. last, it really yeah, did. It does. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm I'm a fanboy. So basically, what I'm saying, and like, I'm really glad to have you here. We're gonna pick your brain, maybe throw some hard questions, and you know, get to know you a little bit better. So yeah. thanks for joining us. Do the best yeah. I can. Sounds cool. And Pete, uh, I'm, this, I'm Seth, and I also wanted to say I'm so thrilled uh, to have you uh, with us today. I just finished your book last week, The Sin of Certainty, and mm-hmm. it really challenged um, a lot of my. Um, thoughts in regards to how I was raised, um, how yeah. I was raised really, um, was all about fundamentalism and knowing, you know, you had to have so many things right, um, about your faith and you had to have so many things, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you had to know them all. Um, and your book has really shaken some of that up for me. And I'm just really thrilled to have you on today. And I'm looking forward to this conversation. That's awesome. Yeah. And Pete, I'm Chris. Uh, I haven't read any of your books, but I have listened to your podcast, The Bible for Normal People, uh, which has been very interesting to hear some of the stuff that you've been talking about on there. Um, Most recently, I listened to the one about politics uh, because I kind of wanted to get a feel for where you were at politically. I know that you've done some writing for uh, HuffPost, and so I thought maybe you might be pretty left-leaning, but it seems like you're more of a moderate uh, and kind of encourage people to... uh, be that way as well. So I really appreciate that outlook. Um, and I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Great. Let's yeah, do it. So where do we go from here? I want to know who Dr. Pete is. I want to know how he got into all this stuff. Oh gosh. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, if you had asked me in college, if you know, Hey Pete, you're going to write books and teach students. I would have said, what are you even talking about? I, I, I never would have registered for me. But for me, I, ha- I had sort of an intellectual awakening after college. Perfect timing, by the way. After you're done, then all of a sudden the lights turn on, right? But um, Spend all the money first. And it, that's, yeah, right. <laughs> I was too busy playing baseball in college. That's all I really cared about. But um, I was a pitcher. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yep. I still hold two records. <laughs> I, held, I held two records at Messiah College still where I went. One was um, strikeouts per nine innings my junior year was about, I think, 12.7 or 12.9, which for you non-baseball people was pretty good. I also hold the record, the career record for wild pitches because I just didn't care where the ball went. And that's just like a metaphor <laughs> for my life. Just throw it all out there and just let it go and see what happens. And that's that's the end of it. So. But um, I love it. Yeah. So anyway, I just I, I had this intellectual awakening where I just realized I want to understand what I say I believe. And I just started reading like anything, including the Bible, like several times in the course of about three years. And as I was going through that process of just reading like anything like church history, philosophy, biblical studies um, and things like that, I, I um, decided to go to seminary. And, you know, that just kept getting fueled that just desire to understand. I don't think it wasn't like an unbridled quest for knowledge because I'm arrogant. It's more like, I just wanted to understand. And the more I read, the more I realized that there's stuff out there. And I went to seminary for four years and about halfway through, 
I thought, you know, I think I want to go into Old Testament study because that's the part that confuses me the most. I don't really know what to do with sure. this. And I remember yeah. one of my seminary professors, um, Ray Dillard, who uh, has passed on about 25 years now, but he, um, uh, he would hold up a Bible in class and he would just like grab the New Testament part and let the Old Testament part sort of flop down and he'd wave it at us and he'd say, the Old Testament's like two thirds to three quarters of your Bible. You better know what to do with it. And that made me think, yeah, that's a really good thing. And uh, another one of my professors sort of spurred me on, Tremper Longman, who's a friend of mine too, he spurred me on to Old Testament studies because he said, yeah, not only is it bigger, but there are like many more jobs in Old Testament than New Testament. <laughs> so it was a practical <laughs> thing too. But um, so yeah, that just started in the, you know, doctoral work. And, uh, you know, I just, I'm not tired of it yet. You know, I've been doing this for 30 some odd years and it, I'm still sort of into it. And I like trying to understand and I've let go of the need to know everything. You know, that happened in my life too. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much, that's, that's the thumbnail version of how I got into all this. Yeah, but your journey is not a traditional one for someone who's a seminary student or a theologian or even a Bible professor. It doesn't seem like where you are now can't be where you thought you would end up on your quest for knowledge back in seminary school. Yeah, you never know where you're going to go. And I wouldn't say, you know, my, <laughs> my story isn't unique, certainly. And I, I know a lot of people. See, it's very common, actually, for people from, let's just say, evangelical backgrounds to go to seminary, and they love it, and they're good students, and the professor say, you got to get a PhD. Well, then you'll get a PhD, and all of a sudden, the paradigm starts shifting, and you start realizing, yeah, I appreciated the background that I got, but all the stuff they said was wrong, I actually seeing is actually pretty right. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's a very common thing, actually, but you don't always hear about it. And this sounds cynical. I don't mean to sound cynical, but uh, you don't hear about it because it's easy to keep that quiet because you have a job, you know, and, and you don't mm. want to sort of make waves. And, and right. that really sounds cynical, but you know, I've, I've, I've lived this and I've seen this in a lot of people and how the cognitive dissonance that they have because they have this education and it's not an education to master things. It's an education to sort of know the lay of the land is very complicated. And because I'm educated, I refuse to come down on certain things. I have to leave things open. Well, a lot of people don't like to leave things open and they usually sign your paycheck or they're on a board or right. something like that. So that's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult thing to be a person of let's say somewhat traditional faith and to engage these academic ideas and come out the way you went in. And a lot of us don't. I guess what's really rare or respectful, I guess, to me would be the fact that you were true to yourself or had the, I guess, brave enough to kind of pave your own way in a way where, where you, you know, the status quo wasn't good enough. You said it's a, it's a normal thing. So it, would have, I guess, been easy, you know, to fall in with the, another statistic, you know, and be a good professor, be a good teacher, but, but yet, you know, wrestle with these things eternally, but to, to be vulnerable enough and willing to risk it all, basically, which I think is one of the things that I respect most about what you've done. Um, I guess, like, it can't be um, how you saw things as you, as you set out, you know, trusting the path you're, the no. path you're on. Well, I mean, I tell this story in The Bible Tells Me So, which came out 
I don't know what year was this, five years ago in 2014, about sort of of the moment in graduate school where pieces just came together. I was listening to, long story short, I was listening to a lecture and I just, I realized that I can't go backwards. I have to push forwards here. I, I, I cannot, what I just heard in this lecture is so clearly right and undermined so much of what I was taught about how the Bible works and what the Bible is. And I remember leaving the lecture hall and walking to my bicycle. And by the time I got to the bicycle rack, I had made up my mind. And I said, I basically have three options. I can make believe I didn't hear what I just heard, which is what a lot of people do. Or I can dedicate my life being an apologist, arguing against what I just heard, which I could never do because I could never face myself if I did that. The only other option was, as I put it in the book, to go through door number three and see what's there. And as a more statement of faith than anything, that I, if God is real, do I have to hide from something or can I just sort of think about it? And and that's that made all the difference to me, you know, and, and, and I, you know, Omar, I appreciate you saying I'm brave. I don't know how brave I am. I'm just, I don't know what else to do. You know, I don't sit there and say, hmm, I must be courageous now because this could cost me a lot. I don't even care. I don't even think about that stuff. I just, I don't know. I can't, I can't live with myself unless I try to be authentic and genuine in these things. And I've always tried to do that. And, you know, I think there are people who are like that too. And there are people who appreciate that and not everybody does. And again, I'm not trying to make other people appreciate that. It's just the way it is. And we all have to live our lives the way we live them. When you said that you had to walk through the door, right? That third option, you had to push yourself and and walk through that door to find out what was on the other side. What's on the other side? What's on the other side, I mean, I would put it a certain way today, not exactly the way I might have put it 25 or so years ago, but uh, mystery, <laughs> um, the fact that I can't control this information and I just have to live with that fact and that things are not as neat and certain as I had hoped they would be, or not hoped they would be, as I always sort of deep down assumed they would be. You know, a lot of students go to seminary and they say, yeah, I got about like 10 questions I want to like work through. And if you're paying attention within a semester, you've forgotten those 10 questions. You got about 50 more. And graduate school just amps that up. You know, if you come from a particular paradigm, a way of thinking about God and faith and the Bible, um, graduate school in, in the study of scripture that takes history seriously like linguistics and archaeology and things like that, the picture that you have, what you come away with, does not always sit easily with what you assume to be the case before. And that's, you know, that's, that's, a, that's not the easiest thing to work through, but that's what I saw. That, that's, and, I, and I realized that, and I knew that there was no going back. And it was sort of like this great sense of anticipation, actually, for me. It wasn't like, oh, I'm scared. It's more like, I'm really uneasy, but I just, I want to keep walking. I want to see what's out here. And what that does is it brings you into conversation with a lot of people who've been Christians over the centuries. And you're like, oh, I'm not that weird. You know, people have thought about this stuff before. You know, it's like, it's not me. It's just, 
it isn't like I left normal Christianity for something weird. It's more like I left an abnormal version of it or, or a, a very small iteration of it to a bigger field where there is a lot of diversity of thought. And that's okay. That's, in fact, what you expect when you're dealing with an infinite God and finite minds. I'm curious what that lecture was that basically was the catalyst to, to not being able to... <laughs> yeah, what was it? I'll be very brief. Um, basically, it was uh, my doctoral uh, advisor, James Kugel, as a Jewish professor at Harvard, and not anymore, but he, um, he lives in Israel now. But um, he was teaching an undergraduate course at Harvard on what he called the Bible and its interpreters. It's a gen ed course. And there were like six, 700 students in this lecture hall listening to the, the they, they elected to take this because he's, he's such a good lecturer. But he was, he likes to talk about how ancient Jewish writers, like before the time of Christ, basically, but after Israel was a nation, the, the period of like what they call the second temple period, which is, you know, a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus, roughly. Um, how they were very creative in understanding their Bible. And he told the story of um, how Jews had this tradition of a movable source of water for the Israelites when they were in the desert after the Exodus. Remember, they were in the desert for 40 years wandering, and they get manna every day. But there's really no, dis well, there's no indication at all that they had a source of water on a regular basis. They're in the wilderness, right? Mm -hmm. So this is curious thing in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, at the beginning of this wilderness wandering period, water comes from a rock. It's a, it's a really well-known story. Then at the end, toward the end of the wilderness wandering period, this is in the book of Numbers, water comes from a rock again. Now those two rocks are in different locations because they've been wandering. And in different times, they're separated by 40 years. So a Jewish tradition arose that said, well, the rock followed them throughout the, through the wilderness. It was like a portable drinking fountain. Hmm. It rolled around the desert and went up with them this way and went down with them this way. And it's creative. I don't know if the ancient Jews believe that historically, but it doesn't matter. It's a way of sort of like almost enjoying and having fun with scripture, right? So... Kugel is, James Kugel is, is talking about this, and he gets to the New Testament, and he says, now everybody turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. And as soon as he said that, I knew I'm about to have a problem that I'm going to have to work through. But you see there, <laughs> Paul is talking about um, this desert period, and he refers to uh, the spiritual food that they ate, which was the manna. And the spiritual drink or the spiritual rock that followed them in the desert. And it was, that's, that, that, that's one word in Greek that, that followed them. It's a rock that accompanied them in the desert. So you see, here's Paul in my Bible clearly connected with this Jewish tradition of a mobile source of water. And I thought to myself, my God, Paul's Jewish. Right? Go figure, right? It's sort of an obvious point. Paul was an educated Jew and part of the traditions of Judaism. And what that did for me, more than anything, and I'd heard stuff like this for years, and whether it's Old Testament related or New Testament related, and what hit me like a, like a four by four on the back of the head was, Pete, this Bible has a context. 
mm-hmm. that context matters. And they're saying what they're saying because of when they're living. It's not a book dropped out of heaven. I didn't believe that anyway, but I saw it in ways that I could never unsee it again. And that's the thing that made me think, you know, Pete, the, the humanity of the Bible, the context of the Bible is not just a nice little thing to know for Bible studies, you know, in church. It actually changes how you think about the Bible if you're raised in a more conservative context. Now, mainline Christians don't have this problem. It's more, you know, conservatively raised Christians. And um, I was never a very good conservative Christian, to be honest with you, but I still had that in my teaching, you know, and I understood and I sort of still made assumptions about how the Bible operates. But this, it really made me realize how if you take the Bible's historical context seriously, it will change how you think about the Bible. And that's sort of the challenge that I've gladly lived with for the past, you know, 25, 30 years now. And that's what I write about. And that's what I blog about. And that's what I teach about. Not just that, but that makes a difference. So you have this new mentality of the Bible has context. What did reading the Bible there on after do for your faith? Like, how did that challenge your faith? How did it grow your faith? Like, did you have moments of, of, well, I don't even know if I can believe that an actual God exists anymore or like, how, how did that play out? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yes to all those things. And it didn't play <laughs> out like in a linear way. It's more like sort of ups and downs, you know, throughout my life. And uh, it's, I think that's part of the deal too. You know, I, I, and that's part of the, the myth that I think people are told that if you're a believer, therefore, if you're doing it right, you will be on this trajectory upward towards greater and greater, greater faith. And those with the fewest doubts are the strongest believers. And um, that's not been my path at all. And, and again, frankly, most people I know have not really been there. They, they struggle with things because life happens or they're reading something in the Bible that they hadn't noticed before. And my goodness gracious, what do I do with this? And um, does any of this matter? You know, does God really exist? And if God exists, is this God anything at all? Like what we read, right. yeah. you know, in Leviticus or Exodus or any other places like that. But then you see, what what I've actually found to be true, though, also is that, you know, forgive me for stating the obvious, I'm not the first person to notice these things, you know. And people have been struggling with things the Bible says, well, at least since the time of the early church for Christians and for Judaism before that. So it's it's part of the relationship, so to speak, that you have with Scripture that invites you into the those challenges and debates which makes it more of a with god wisdom i guess than like you said like a love story yeah and um more than a rule book the here it is and it's perfectly consistent because god would only be perfectly consistent but no we have a book that has that faces uh, that that we're faced with moral challenges like god does what (laughs) are you kidding me right Um, or with historical challenges and and you know their contradictions and all those things that we try to deny but you can't they're they are there not every page but there there are significant differences of opinion in the bible about a lot of things and that's just the way the bible is and you know one thing just to get on the hobby horse here in history of judaism uh there's been more of an openness to accepting that 
And in fact, the worship of God is, it's part of that is debating with God and with each other about what God wants. For Christians, the history of Christianity, there is that, but certainly not today. Today, it's more debate. <laughs> no, right, there's, there's no right. engagement. In other words, the, the intellectual engagement and back and forth as a form of worship, that's something that Christians, at least in my experience, have not done very well, and they try to minimize that. But you know, anyone who's read the Bible has problems, and, and even if they deny it, they're there, and they have to struggle with things too, and there aren't simple answers to these things. So maybe faith is not about getting the Bible right. You know, that's, I put that in one of my books too. So Then I, I want to, so in talking about that, that the Bible has these faults, you know, I grew up in a very conservative Southern Baptist upbringing, and I'm also gay. So it's an inherent right. journey that I had to go through. Yeah. But yeah. one of the things I've found, or at least I was taught, was to find a lot of my security and what really provided me a sense of foundation was the Bible. And so if we start to look at the Bible with a different perspective, to see it as it's not this thing that's 100%, you know, it's not infallible. It, it has these different components to it. Then what is it that's feeding your faith? You know, as you changed, as your opinion of the Bible changed, how did that change your faith and how did you compensate for what the Bible once provided? Yeah, and for not you? just throw it out altogether. Right. Right. Well, I mean, the love-hate relationship with the Bible at times, you know, that's, that's, that's always there. But I think, you know, um, Seth, what I, I, I have been in the process of learning to replace um, the Bible is the foundation of my faith with the presence of God in my life. And now people will say, well, how do you know God's presence? I, I don't know in a rationalistic sense, but... It's, it is more of a full-bodied, you know, left brain, right brain working together kind of acknowledgement of that, which um, sometimes I just have to not analyze, right? And I've, in other words, I think I've been in the process of learning to, um, to honor my head, but not assume that I'm going to be able to control all this information through it. Because if God is real... If I can control God in my mind, then God isn't real, as far as I'm concerned. God has to be infinite mystery, as far as I'm concerned. So it's it's a different way of looking at God. You know, I have um, I have a course that I teach to my undergrads, which I love teaching. It's on the nature of biblical interpretation. I have them write little reflection essays um, during the course of the semester, and the last one they they write is what sort of relationship would you like to have with the Bible five years from now? What do you see happening? And I remember one year a student said, I just want to love the Bible. The Bible is my life. It's my hope. It's my foundation. It, it gives me comfort. It gives me hope. And, you know, she went on and on. And I said, this is really helpful. Can I suggest you cross the word Bible out and put God in there? And then we're on to something at that point, right? And that is highly, see, the thing is, you know, the Bible is the foundation gives the appearance of objectivity in your faith. It's right here in writing. But the thing is that we're always subjective creatures reading this. 
And the Bible doesn't really lend itself to that kind of an objective foundationalism, philosophers call it, because it's so diverse. It's ancient. It's ambiguous. It's, it's not, it doesn't function well that way. What it does, it's more, I mean, I've, I've called it in other contexts, it's sort of like a, almost a means of grace. It's a way of getting you into something, but it's not the end of it. It's more a door you walk through to commune with God and to try to sense the true presence of God in us and all around us all the time anyway. We just have to become aware of it. Part of that is arguing with the Bible. Let's unpack that presence thing a little bit, because for me, that's almost like a trigger word being associated with, you know, Assemblies of God and being a minister for, you know, about about a decade. Mm. Um, There was a lot of... Boy, a Baptist and a... You guys are messed up. (laughs) Right? Seriously. I should charge you for therapy anyway. God. (laughs) <laughs> might be interested in that, but um, um, all right, probably probably owe you money already because uh, I think there's a lot of therapy that's been already had. Uh, but my question, so it's like I said, it's triggering the whole presence thing because I've seen too much uh, sensationalism or emotionalism wrapped up in what we call God, to where now we start chasing a feeling or emotion rather, and then it becomes way unbalanced on the other way where you're basically still, you, you can ignore scripture and justify anything as long as you're feeling God. And if that feeling's not there, then it can trigger a whole bunch of other type of em- emotional issues, depression, you know, like anxiety and what's wrong exactly. with me. Absolutely. Yeah. If you don't, if you don't have those, see in evangelicalism, if you don't have these thoughts, what's wrong with you in other iterations of the faith, if you don't have these emotions, what's wrong with you? Right. So, see there, I mean, you're, you're raising a really good issue that, with my students, it comes up all the time. Okay, I have this Bible, but it's not the foundation, but I have this experience, but which one sort of leads the other? And my quick answer is they're sort of in the conversation with each other, you know. And in other words, if, if you're told, you know, Everything has to be exciting and beautiful all the time. I'm saying, read a psalm for heaven's sake. Read Ecclesiastes. Read Job. Let's get depressed mm-hmm. together. You know, these are and this is part of the tradition of the ancient Israelites who compiled their scripture. And they said, this is part of who we are. This is part of what it means to commune with God. Talk about the New Testament and suffering. You know, and you know, suffering is more redemptive in the New Testament, and it brings you into union right, with yeah. Christ I mean, when Paul talks about stuff like that, which I think is very, very important, but it doesn't deny the reality of it, right? So I, I want to get into conversations, not with proof texts, but with like themes or, or, or the things that are just, that seem to us to be more core than other things. You know, I think the love of God is more central than kill the Canaanites and take their land. Right. I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I've just made that decision. So have most Christians, frankly, you know, throughout history, they've made that decision. So I want to sort of like be in this dynamic conversation with my community, with my own experience, with scripture, but in the context of the worship of God, not just trying to ferret out like an intellectual game. Even though so ferreting trying out to- a game can be an act of worship as well. I'm trying to understand how you can get there because you have this text that for some, like you said earlier, would be the foundation of their faith. And without that text, without that Bible, no one is a Christian today. 
There's no way that that survives, in my opinion. I can't imagine that that would happen. So, and in that Bible, like you just mentioned, you have the Israelites saying, oh, I'm going to go kill some Canaanites today, you know, and justifying it by saying God told them to do that, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, I don't know how people... Well, right. And and not only that, but you've got the very first book ever written from the Bible, Job. I mean, you have God playing with a man's life and just blatantly killing his family and no big deal. I'm, you know, playing games with a man's life with the devil. You know, I mean, it's it's really interesting to me that people. Absolutely. Right. Like, so. So how do people or, or how do you or anyone today reconcile that and say, you know what, like through all that, I can, I can cherry pick the good things and say that this is a, 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 by grace, a vision of God that we can have, um, you know, that can start us out in the faith. But, but how is that any different from a Muslim who looks at the Quran the same way or uh, a Buddhist who feels the same way about the Buddha? I mean, I, I guess my question is, is, are you kind of like a, cause if you, if you're not taking the Bible at face value and you're not saying this is 100% the God breathed word mm-hmm. or whatever, like, are you a universalist? Like everyone kind of has a general idea about God and that's kind of what we should all strive for. I mean, like I, what, what's the point here? I, I guess I'm saying like, I know God's mysterious and it's fun to talk about. Um, and you know, hopefully nobody gets too stressed out about talking about <laughs> it, but, um, you know, what would be the point after all? Yeah, and I, 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 and I think that is what really generates the fear in those raised in conservative circles that if I don't have something that is absolutely uniquely different, namely this Bible, than other religions do, then what's the point? How do I know? Right? And my answer is exactly. you don't know. Right. Period. Yeah. You don't know the answer to that question. Deal with it. I mean, I would say it, I'm on a <laughs> podcast, right, with you guys. But, uh, you know, in, in conversation, I'd be very gentle with that depending on who the person is. Or if the person's a leader, I would be harsher probably because, come on, you need to understand this because you need to get over this the sin of certainty. You know, this this idea that you need to be certain about these things. But I, I definitely get to what you're saying. You know, I mean, it's it's an issue, Chris, that makes us think differently about the nature of our faith. and. Um, you know, what is it that makes this unique and worth holding on to? Well, it's the Bible. Yeah, but the Bible is a problem. Well, then take all of it and just live with it, a fundamentalist response. Throw it all away, be an atheist or whatever, you know. But for me, I think it's it's more um, – I'm, I'm going to be careful how I put this here. Um, I love the Bible just the way that it is. And I love the fact that I get to disagree with it and say, I don't think, I don't, I don't see God here at all. And I say that oftentimes on the basis of my own lived experience and in tradition. And, mm-hmm. and that helps me sort of navigate these things and say, okay, listen, believing in God and believing that the Bible is 100% true are not the same thing. And the next question that always comes up, I think about this all the time. What about other religions? You know, are they, can't they say the same thing too? And I said, well, I think they can say the same thing. What makes, what makes our religion unique? It's not an inerrant Bible because it's clearly not. It may be how this text 
bears witness to Jesus. Forgiveness and hope. In its very diverse ways, right? Um, and, okay, but how do you know Jesus is true apart from the Bible? Good question. You don't make a move without the Bible, but even the gospel stories don't get along very well in certain places. Right. Yeah. And yeah. the church has always, I think, intuitively understood that. They tried making it all fit together for about 100 years in the second century. That's, uh, you know, um, sort of making the four Gospels into one big one. And then they said, well, this is stupid because they're out of chrono chronological order. They don't do things at the same time. They, don't, they contradict it. You can't do it. So you've got this intuition, I think, that the church has always struggled with the Bible. And I th see, I think what uh, this is not a cheap apologetic for the Christian faith by any means, but I think something that makes this Christian faith different than what I've seen is how God participates in humiliation, basically the overturning of the honor and shame dynamic that governs most of reality, how God aligns with crucifixion, and God, in a sense, participates in suffering. And uh, Bruce Metzger said, uh, was it Metzger or was Martin Hengel? One of these guys with a German last name said a few years ago that <laughs> if you're going to start a religion in the first century, this is not how you do it. Right. You don't do that. And I, I've, I've thought about it. So it makes a lot of sense because, you know, what, what, what religions have a God, a creator God, that participates in abject humiliation, which is exemplified at that time in the Roman cross, which is meant to humiliate and shame. And this is how God shows up. And so you have this, I love paradox. I love things I can't solve, actually. You have the paradox where the glory of God is seen in the humiliation of the cross. And Paul talks about that. I'm like, I, I I wouldn't think of something like this. I wouldn't like this is this is how you keep your religion alive. You take a crucified God and a guy and sort of make him into something else. Usually that would end in a no starter. You know that's which is what many people thought. Most people thought that in Paul's day. And I think about that. You know, I think about how it really is a Jesus centered thing that the book bears witness to, and it's not the thing by which we know we can be sure about Jesus, but the book bears witness to us, to, to Jesus. The kicker, what makes this difficult, is that the way that the book bears witness to Jesus is in weird ancient ways of talking. Right, yeah. It's in idioms of antiquity. It's in assumptions about the nature of reality, like God needs blood, you know? <laughs> He's a vampire. Or, or warfare is fantastic, kill your enemies, but nah, don't kill them. You know, it's, and, and, and this... And we see, I think, in the Bible more than more than like a rule book. I think what we see is a the real struggle of people over centuries to try to come to terms with who is this God and what do we, what does it mean to love this God or to worship this God or to follow this God, and that's why you have this diversity in the Bible, which is a good thing. See, it's not a problem we have to solve. It's actually a window onto the reality of the life of faith, regardless, you know, there is no religious faith that can be certain. Not in that sense. We're all winging it. <laughs> but, you know, we're winging it, not, not because we're putting our brains on hold. But I think, we're, at least I speak for myself, it's more like I've learned to tame what I can expect my mind to do.
And, and I do find it inherently, it's, it's a boring religion where everything is worked out. And here's the book <laughs> that lays it all out for you. Just follow it. And you've got, you've got control of an infinite God in an infinite cosmos, literally infinite cosmos. That's 14 billion years old from what we can even see. You know, mm-hmm. I just, at that point, it's like, you know, I'm just going to try to hang out and in, and enjoy this life of faith and try to be faithful and to do good to others, you know, to, to love God and to love my neighbor as myself, which sums up the law and the prophets. Jesus said that. Deuteronomy says that, right? And I think that's, there, there's a heart to this that is lost sometimes because we're so obsessed of making sure we have the right answer and let's say a scientific or evidentialist sense. And I think the truth, the ultimate reality blows it out of the water. Yeah, that's really good. That's interesting. And I see how you kind of danced around an answer that made me wonder. So I'm just going to, what do you do then if you're getting rid of certainty? What do you do with heaven and hell? What do you like as far as, obviously it's not something that you're, basing your life decisions upon, but it's something that's in the book, obviously. And if we're, you know, know, we're talking about these other religions and, you know, we can find God there, this, that, and the other. So how do you, what does somebody do with that type Mm -hmm. of certain destination? Sure. You know, because something is certain, we all are going to die. That's certain. So. Right. Right. And narrow is the path to salvation. (laughs) Right. Narrow is the path. Well, the thing is that (laughs) depends on, I mean, you just said, Chris, narrow is the path to salvation. Well, what does salvation mean in the New Testament? It doesn't mean where you go after you die. It means right now you're changed. You're part Billy of the Graham kingdom of God. Billy Graham said it was the Romans road. Billy Graham is wrong, in my opinion. And so I, there's many I people. Agree. Think, right? I agree. Well, <laughs> I want to get that golden ticket. All right, I, I want to get in. Right now, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, when I say that, I'm not denying afterlife. That's that's a separate issue, though. But when the point of Jesus's ministry wasn't just don't go to hell, just believe in me. <laughs> Jesus never talks like that, right? You know, when but Zacchaeus the Jews really even believe in the tree hell? and, um, uh, you know, the tax collector and he comes down, he's I'm going to give half my stuff song. away. And Jesus says, surely, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not really though. Um, surely salvation has come to this house. That doesn't mean, thank goodness, if you die tonight, you're going to heaven. It means, You've been and you've been born again, you know. Not again, not in the evangelical sense, but you, you, you have died. You, you're you're part of this process now of dying to yourself, and becoming a new person, who is filled with love and gratitude and kindness to other people. Which is not just mamby pamby self help talk. Try being kind to people. You know, it's not always in our nature to do that. So I think that's salvation means stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, you mentioned to Omar um, what, you know, heaven and hell are in the Bible. Well, a lot of people don't think that they are. I mean, at least not the way we think of them. Hell, the word hell does not occur in the Bible anywhere. That's right. in my Bible. That's because you have a bad translation. And the word that is in there is like yeah. the garbage pit, right? Like it's like the trash Well, area. it's Gehenna. Yeah, Gehenna is the Greek word and it comes from a Hebrew idea the Valley of Hinnom in Hebrew is Gehinnom, 
And in Greek, it becomes, through Aramaic, it becomes Gehenna. And Gehenna is a location outside of the walls of Jerusalem, which is, it, it later came to be sort of like a garbage pit, but it's symbolic of, um, okay, in the book of Jeremiah, let's talk about hell for a minute, shall we? In the book of Jeremiah, let's do it. Uh, the Judahites are seeing that they're in trouble because the Babylonians look like they're going to come and take care of business. So according to Jeremiah, they sacrifice their children in this valley of Hinnom, which is a no-no. You just don't do that if you're an Israelite. The two things you don't do, you don't make an idol of, of Yahweh, and you don't kill your kids to sacrifice. Those just bad things, right? So uh, Jeremiah says, basically, uh, the Babylonians are coming. They're going to throw your bodies in there, and the smoke and the fire will go up, and uh, it won't be quenched, right? So when Jesus talks about Gehenna, he's appealing to this Jeremiah concept to his own Jewish listeners and saying, another moment of decision is here. The kingdom of God is in your midst. Are you going to wind up like them? Guess what happens in the year AD 70? Jerusalem is once again raised to the ground by the Romans. Right? So there's a, there's a first century context for this. Jesus isn't talking about where you spend eternity. Now, there are other passages that, you know, you have to think about a little bit more, but... Um, there are books written on this forever, and basically deconstructing the common notion of what hell means, it's utterly unbiblical. A place where you go and burn forever in pain and torture, that's utter and complete <laughs> nonsense. That's, that is a non-biblical, con- that's medieval Catholic theology to scare people, perhaps. Okay. Yeah. It's not biblical theology. I don't disagree, but yeah, um, I, thanks for explaining yeah. that. Yeah. Can I offer um, a book? Yeah. I mean, um, yes. the yeah. Brad, Brad Jerzak, who is an Orthodox theologian, he has a book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, which basically goes through all the passages very gently, very quickly. It's not an 800-page book. It's a couple hundred we'll pages. We'll make sure but, to put that in the show notes. Um, so um, look at that again. Yeah, yeah. So, But just one, just I wanted to complete one thought because I think it's important if I can remember what it is. Hold on a second here. So, um, Heaven and hell. We're talking yeah. about heaven, heaven and hell. And, you know, how we, I guess, imposing things onto the Bible that um, uh, we, I don't know where we're getting these notions from, but they're there. And I think, you know, reading the Bible carefully sometimes helps, but also remembering that they're talking in an ancient idiom, you know, that again, it's not something that we would necessarily think of today. And that's why our notions of God have changed a lot since the first century. You know, most people don't really think of God that way when you get down to it. We don't think of God as on a throne someplace. We think of God as sort of everywhere, especially in the scientific world, right? We can't, there's no up. (laughs) There's no place up there where God's hanging out. It's just God, most people think of God as really everywhere. And with a universe our size, that changes the discussion considerably. Sure. Maybe, God, maybe Richard Rohr, for example, is right, that God is in everything. The presence of God, the, the source of life, is in every material thing. That would make sense to me. I mean, the idea of secular to yeah. me just pisses me off anytime. Like, in my yeah. involvement in church and stuff, that was always something that, like, they're trying to, like, the sacred versus the secular. And I'm like, what does that even mean? Like, I don't, I don't get it. If God didn't create it, how does it exist? Like, that was just blowing yeah. my mind, so... Right. Everything belongs to God. This is God's creation, right? That, that's a pretty fundamental Christian confession. And if that's true, that makes a difference in how we look at things. 
You know, it's not like we're the little camp over here. Well, you are, if you're an evangelical, you are a little camp historically, but what if God is known outside of evangelicalism and to different iterations of Christianity? And what if God is known outside of the Christian world? Yeah. No, right. no, <laughs> no, Pete. It's all about us versus them, okay? I have well, to have my people uh, that are well, right. people are telling you you're going to hell. Judge. So. <laughs> I understand that. That's true. And we're working it out. We fight quite a bit. But, but we're still in the same camp, so it's okay. But the, these other people, you know, I have to be able to to put other people into another box because that makes me feel better, better about than myself. Saved. Right. Yeah. Because that's, that, that's right. what it's all about, right? Right. Yeah. That makes you mean, though, sometimes, too, you know, to other people, <laughs> which is not a good thing. Now, of course, see, this is, this is again, this, is, this kind of stuff makes people not like me. And I don't, don't take this, like, literally and, like, I really mean this, but let me use a metaphor. I think what you're describing, Seth, is sort of like an adolescent version of Christianity. It's what you have when you need structures and concrete structures in your life and you tell or even a junior high school version of christianity where listen you must be home by 10 don't drink that don't smoke that don't do this be here don't do this don't hang out with those people but as you grow to adulthood you have to walk this path and figure things out and things become not as neat and tidy. It's like the experience, like a lot of people have going to college, all of a sudden they're on their own and the roommate doesn't think about Jesus exactly the same way they do. So they start working that out or they take a course on world religions and they're saying, you know, this 20 year old Pakistani woman who's starving to death, do I think she's actually going to hell? That's the thing that pushed Rachel Held Evans over the edge. You know, when she wrote that book, uh, her first book, Um, it just, it didn't, she could not conceive of God as being like that, right? So trust your instincts on that one, you know. But, you know, you're right, you know, Chris, you said before that, but where's the control? You know, if, if we start using our experience to sort of define what God is, then God can be anything we want God to be. Yes, and right. it all becomes anecdotal. Huh? It all becomes anecdotal, and whatever thought I might have that pops into my head, I can claim that was God-inspired, right? Right, and that happens, and that leads people down very bad paths. But to me, as I, as I process that reality that you're describing, it's less of a problem for me if I don't think of God only being able to show up through our mental constructs, but through the things we see in the world around us, too. Through, I mean, again, this sounds like it is sort of mystical. I don't mind using that word, but even things sure. like, I mean, a walk in the woods or sitting outside during a sunrise or sunset and just saying, wow. I mean, I can understand sort of through cosmology why these things are happening and why the sun looks the way that it does. None of that matters. It's a, it's a direct sort of penetration, so to speak of the thickness of the presence of God around us, who is not a guy in the sky. Right. It, but that's why the question of what is God like? I mean, in, in my last book, I asked that a lot, you know, what is God like? And my answer is beats me. All I know is that people have been thinking about that and changing their minds for a long time, beginning within the biblical period itself. 
God can't be held under control. God is subject, not object. You know, that's what happens to people in seminary. They go and they study God as an object. Right. And that's when faith becomes stale. It's not because they're learning things. It's because they've been taught to think of God as a thing to study, when in fact God is the ground of our being and everything. Well, it's... It's so interesting because, you know, in the Bible, it says that we are made in his image, but I often wonder if we haven't made him in our image. Yeah, that's true. Well, that's the old joke. You know, uh, I think it's it's either Homer Simpson or a philosopher, depending on what website you go to. Um, <laughs> um, in, the be- in the beginning, God created man. And like gentlemen, we've been returning the favor ever since. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's Rousseau actually who said that. It was either Rousseau or Mark Twain. I think those are the two people, but yeah, it's true. But the thing is, here's my point. Making God in our own image is actually inevitable because we're only people and we don't have access to pure ultimate reality. We're only people thinking through our lives and our existence, which is why we always have to hold our theologies gently, realizing that this is just provisional. This is plan B. This is not plan A. This is provisional, what we think about God. And we are constantly sensing to be, to to open up that mystery more and more. That's, I think, what we're supposed to be doing and not clamping it down. I think something down. that bridges that too, uh, Pete, when you're talking about enjoying a sunset or, you know, the something God created in a scenery around you. But even like art or music, I feel like for, for me personally too, on that same thought pattern is you're able to still enjoy God and his creation, you know, through like us as creators, as, you know, you know, pushing into the, the talents and abilities that, are, that we're given and putting back out into the world and being able to enjoy that, even if it doesn't have some sort of like Christian stamp or say Jesus 15 times, but just something authentic and created and new, something you can, that's somebody's personality, you know, like I think that is also an expression and ties so much into the creating and creative ability of appreciating, um, like thinking that if we're created beings and that we're, we can then create is like, there's the one level of, of nature. And then there's a whole nother level of like this art form that we can like get into. And I think that like going back to the presence right. and feeling God's presence and stuff like that, a lot of times for me, um, it happens more through quote unquote, going back to that secular, uh, like yeah, circles well, that it does and yeah. say, you know, going to a church building and, and saying the, the correct mm-hmm. number of songs and ra- raising your hands and going to the, going to the altar right. at the end, which are also <laughs> can be emotional, but it seems cheap after you build a lifestyle around it. it. It seems limiting, you know, because you can't see God in, I mean, if you, if you've ever cried hearing a song, there's something happening. You know, there's something has been created there that hits you so emotionally or, or art, or I like, you know, beautiful buildings and walking inside of them. You know, I like the ideas of sacred space and that doesn't have to be in a church, although historically that oftentimes is a church because that's who bother building things in the medieval period, you know, but yeah, yeah, (laughs) but but you're right. You know, I think that's a really important point because, you know, we're co-creators with God and, from an evolutionary perspective, people would say that that biologically we've evolved to such a developed point that we can be conscious of how we've evolved. 
And that consciousness that leads us to ponder and to think, that's a mark of the image of God. That's it. You're right. He is a heretic. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. That's that's the least problematic thing I think I've said in the past hour. No, sure. So I have a question. And yes. I, I've asked this of almost every theologian we've had. So this is not All a new question Seth is asking. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> yeah, thanks so much. Okay. So this is a serious question. Why why did we cut the Bible off? Yes. You know, if God is alive yesterday, today, and tomorrow, if he is working in our lives today, just as he was back then, are, are we saying by, by canonizing the Bible and, and cutting it off and saying, here are the 66 books, right? And this, mm-hmm. this is the end all be all. This is, this is it. Are we saying that God's not speaking to us anymore? Like why, why hasn't the Christian faith picked up another <laughs> collection or added to the, the new new testament right, or yeah. added to the to the one that we already have because isn't he still working in us today and is he not right are, are we saying that he only spoke then like i just kind of break that down for me because i right. yeah i, I really no, like I a new a bible <laughs> now my um my students have asked why don't we just add to the bible and my answer is because nobody will read it that's why it, it won't it won't gain any sort of support in the larger group. So practically speaking, it's not going to happen. But I think that um, I mean one factor here, Seth, is how the Bible came apart came came about. It was very much a political process as much as a theological process in the fourth century and fifth century. Oh, yeah. And so there you have it, right? But taking a page out of Judaism, okay? Judaism has a Bible. We call it the Old Testament. They just call it the scriptures or Tanakh or whatever they want to call it. Um, but built around that and after that is this robust discussion where you disagree with it or you agree with it or you develop it further and you do this. And that's called the Talmudic tradition. And that's why you talk to Jews and you think, well, Jews are legalistic because they read Exodus and they do what it says. No, they've been debating over how to keep Exodus for over 2,000 years. They have what's called a halakhic tradition. Halakh is Hebrew for walking. You walk a path. And so the whole point of Judaism is you, you keep enriching, let's say, the scriptural foundation, but you will sometimes take it to task as well, right? So the church has never really developed that. But I, I like to make the point that I think the, the New Testament sort of works like that. The New Testament is taking that ancient story and developing it in a very different direction, in a direction it never anticipated. And what the theology of the church should be doing is saying, okay, listen, we are continuing this journey here in conversation with this text, but realizing the text doesn't give us the answers that we need at this point in time. And my big proof text for that is the earliest centuries of the church, which took a Semitic religion that was very apocalyptic, the end's coming really soon, and they put things in Greco-Roman philosophical categories. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten of the Father, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Probably saying, what are you talking about? I, Jesus would have said, <laughs> I don't even understand those words, you know, this is, this is, but it's, it's part of the philosophy, and that's okay. 
See, that's part of the development of the tradition. And we have orthodoxy and we have Roman Catholicism. We have various forms of Protestantism. Those are all expressions, I think, of a God that is infinite, that cannot be captured by any one system. We're doing that. See, we've been adding to it all along. We just don't like to say that because it sounds like we're not respecting the Bible, but the Bible generates it. The Bible is like a compost pile, Walter Brueggemann calls it, like a manure pile. <laughs> Things grow out of it. <laughs> That's its purpose. It's not dust. You don't eat the compost pile. You eat what comes out of it. You don't smell the compost pile. You smell the flowers that grow from it. That's, that is the point of theology and the entire journey of the church. I've never wow. viewed it like that. Well, now you are, okay, Seth? So just chill out a little bit. Send <laughs> me a check, right? But the Bible then is given its, its pride of place as a text that sums up key moments in the history of humanity, I will put it, that are still limited because they're contextual, but are the energy from which we can point beyond it. I don't know how else to live with a Christian faith, frankly, other than that, because it's not a matter of finding the right verse. There's always another verse. It's true. It's very true. Oh, that's, that's pretty heady. That's good stuff, though. I mean, obviously, that's a question, like Seth said, he's asked a couple of other guests that we've had, and it's a really good question, and it's something that, like, I've, yeah, since he's brought it up, you know, I think I've wrestled with it before, but I've wrestled with it even more after him bringing it up. It's a great point, yeah. because most of like, you know, the inspired readings that I've had or, you know, people, conversations that I've had, you know, aren't, didn't come like, you know, might've been able to base them off of principles found in scripture, but it wasn't somebody like right. preaching a verse to me, you know, it's like life stories that people were yeah. telling and things that they've lived through and how, and how that impacted them. That, that's right. actually like made some sort of impact in my life. So, um, right. Well, just a very quick, quickly, what Seth said, what's behind it, is, I mean, I'm not saying you're complicit in this, Seth, but what's behind it is the assumption that God only speaks through Scripture. Now, Scripture's ended. How can God speak? Right. And that's how I was... that's what you're taught. Right. That is what I was taught. And yes. I, I'm, I just met with a pastor like this last week. I hope he listens to this. But um, he was talking about there's like, we experience God in three different ways. And he's like, you've only been using one, right? <laughs> you've right. only been That's taught. You've only been taught to use one. But there's these other ways in which you can receive from God, and you need to start engaging those. And I would say you weren't even taught one very well. Well, I would agree. You're treating it like a rule book instead of something else. But mm -hmm. right, so, we're also screwed up. There's no <laughs> hope for us. So I want to transition a question back to like uh, more relational going, you know, we mentioned how we had Elizabeth and Petters on earlier um, mm -hmm. and congratulations, by the way, uh, new grandpa with Bo and congratulations, Elizabeth. That's right. Yeah. We have a little boy now too. Yeah. yeah and, <laughs> Thanks. Um, but how has this, you know, she spoke a little bit about, you know, what it was like growing up with you before this transformation of, you know, mm -hmm. um, being more open-minded or more progressive, however you want to say that. Heretical. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, be before you dove into the dark side. Um, but how, talk a little bit about your relationships with people and your family. Um, you know, what it was like before and 
and how it's changed now and um has it become easier i guess um to be a father or grandfather like kind of like not being certain of everything like and how does that like has that impacted the way you parent i guess is the question i'm asking oh a lot yeah i think and i think for the better you know there's there's no like tension in my family about let's say evolving, sorry, I'm using that <laughs> word again, evolving theologies <laughs> and evolving faith, right? There's, there's no tension because sort of like my kids figure that out in their teens anyway. You know, the, 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 the evangelical paradigm ceased having any explanatory power for them. It didn't make sense of the world they live in, which is something about the younger generation that's, you know, you know, thirties and, and, and younger, you know, for me, younger, um, the, the need for authenticity and integrity is, is really very important. It's not, I need to fit into something. It's like, I just, I, I'm not going to do something just to fit in. Right. My kids are all like that. And so it's, it's opened up avenues of conversation that might not have been there. Right. And, and I feel like for myself, it isn't so much, I believe this thing and now I sort of change. It's more like I was in a system and I was subconsciously trying to make it work and not really realizing I was doing that, but I was actually denying myself. Yeah. And it's more like becoming more aware of who I am. And I could go on for hours about that, but it's more about becoming aware of who I am and relaxing a bit about things. And you know, it's, 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 so it's, for me, it's been good. It hasn't been really a problem. And I think it's, it's made me a better person. And that sounds secular. It's not, it's, it's godly. It's, it's Jesus-y, it's Christian-y to be a good person, to be a person that people want to be around people, a person that people come to when they have a problem, you know, and, and my path to that is the Christian faith. And I think there's a lot there to to sort of take control over me and push me in that direction. And I think I was limiting it because of the tradition that I was trying to fit into. And um, that, that valued more having the right answers yeah. than, and you're than just, other things. Not unlike Baptists. You you're know? just regurgitating yeah. answers at that point too. You weren't actually <laughs> giving, like speaking from your heart or experiences, it's like, like right. what is the correct answer? And if I give, it's like a, almost you're a doctor. It's almost like a prescription. Here's your, here's your prescription. It's this verse and apply it to your life. And if it doesn't work. Yes. And what ruined that is my Harvard experience began to ruin that. And then my family began to ruin that because I can't even control them. How am I going to control God? Right? So, and I was trying to control that, you know, emotionally, because I had a fear of change and the fear of being out of control. So I was sort of impose that on my kids. And when Liz was having trouble, I was trying and to protect. control her. You were thinking you're protecting. And yeah, that's... I was trying, exactly. I was trying to protect her, but uh, she said something to me um, in the midst of all that. She says, dad, you have to stop trying to fix me. So you feel better. She's like 16. Mm. I'm like, I was like 45. I didn't ever thought about that before, but that's exactly what I was doing. So those things sort of came together to push me a little bit. And, you know, Richard Rohr says, what, what, what drives you onto this journey? It's two things. It's either love or pain. It's being encouraged by others. It's not by doctrinaire forcing people. It's either by love or by just the pain that you've had where it's not working right. and you finally say like an alcoholic, I need help. I can't do this anymore. And that's for me, that's it was the definitely the pain side. It wasn't the love side. 
<laughs> I wouldn't have listened to that. <laughs> I had to listen to the pain side for me, you know, and, 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 you know, the family matters. That was just a part of it. You know, there's other stuff too, like my world's coming apart in my head and I've never had that happen to me before. What do I do? Man, yeah. You said the path that you took to all of this was the path of Jesus. Would you say that other people can get on this path via other uh, avenues? Yeah, I think so. Because, I think it's happened, you know, and um, I'm very conscious of the fact that I don't know if I would be on this path had I been born in Sweden, you know, right. or grown up in China, but not to a missionary family or something, right? So, and this is where, you know, ideas, people call it different things, but Christian universalism, you know, that that Jesus is different, the death and resurrection means something that is is for the whole world. And God is in the process of redeeming everything that God has created. And people like Brad Jerzak or uh, Robin Perry, if you may know, he wrote The Christian Universalist, which is a great book. And you realize this is stuff that the Orthodox Church has been thinking since like origin and before. This is, this is, this is not a new idea. It's the belief no, not that at all. God is yeah. good and just and right, and God will redeem everything. Does that mean everybody gets a free pass? Oh, no, there's judgment. And we're all going to be judged and we're all going to see ourselves for who we are. And it may take time for that to happen for, for people either now or later. And that's where the, I mean, I don't really believe in purgatory in the Catholic sense, but how the transition to a simplicity of being in God continues after death. Right. So it isn't like, you know, your, your circumstances in this life, with all the baggage we have, which may keep you from any sort of religious experience, that's not the end of your story. It continues, you know? And again, that sounds heretical. Yes, to an evangelical and fundamentalist mind, it does. To the broader Christian world, it doesn't. I'm not saying it's right. I actually believe that, though. Right. You know? and, and we've only had this fundamentalist attitude for not that long in the history of Christianity, right? right? It, it's actually pretty recent. It is, and and which is why one something that sets me off pretty quickly is when I hear, you know, prominent fundamentalists say, "Well, the Christian Church has always thought X, like they've always believed in a literal hell." No, they haven't. <laughs> I'm sorry, not not in the way you're conceiving it now. There, there again, judgment and ref, a refiner's fire. You know, that's not meant to burn and destroy us, but to, meant to, to, to burn this stuff off, you know, as, as a metaphor, obviously. Um, that's stuff the church has believed and probably always believed in some sense. But, but the problem is we, we take our rationalistic faith and we universalize that and say, this is what people have always believed. Yeah, and then you add the whole political opponent to it or component to it, and it just makes Ugh. it even more sickening and more dangerous. Um, Pete, I just wanted to thank you real quick once again, Pete, or, and, and let you know, uh, honestly, without you and people like you from your generation, like you said, Richard Rohr and some of these other names that you mentioned, um, I think Christianity has hope with the generations coming up below us, but it's people like yourself from the generation above us who's willing to like step out and go against, cause we, we spoke a lot about fundamentalism here today and about how much of a problem it might be or is from our perspectives and things that we've lived through. 
Um, but I, I feel like that there's hope with this next generation. I think fundamentalism will die out with your generation, but thank you for being willing to like kind of push against the tide in a little ways. Um, and, and, create opportunities for people like us and the generation below me and stuff like that to question and to, to know that, you know, it's okay. And actually the world is much bigger than the fundamentalist America that we grew up, grew to know. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I appreciate that. Thanks. I, uh, I don't want to like, I don't want to open a, ca a bag of worms, but I am curious, um, on what you think of, um, the Christian faith tying <laughs> to our political system, um, and kind of how the Christian faith, the church has essentially gone into business with the Republican party and like what that's done, um, to the Christian faith overall, especially for those who fall outside of that, who fall outside of those very conservative. Yeah. Norms. I think it's all bad. And, and, um, I'm not the only one saying that, but it's mm -hmm. anytime you align yeah. the gospel of the infinite creator with any political regime, it doesn't matter what it mm -hmm. is. It always Orange Jesus. Trouble. Yeah. I mean, we knew it with Constantine, like when we think back to what happened there mm -hmm. and I'm just, yeah. now it's become so divisive. It's a pretty I, good movie. I'm just curious on yeah. how how the Christian faith is going to rebound. <laughs> well, I think, you know, if the Spirit of God is real, it will be re-immersed <laughs> in the presence of the Spirit. And uh, But, you know, bad things have happened in the history of humanity, you know, and this this is not like, it isn't like, People are being, there's no genocide happening, right? right? But right. it's still, really? Are you kidding me? And and I think that, you know, the, the reality of the creator is still around us. And how is it going to rebound? I, I think the people are going to force it to rebound. Maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not next year. But it, it, that's, that's usually what happens. And I think the the spirit of god working through creation or working through people is how this changes and uh but i think i do think that there is a time for gentleness too for how that was i think i think the religious right they're not all evil people i think they're just scared of losing a way of thinking about reality that donald trump gives them and it doesn't matter whether he believes a word of it or not he's giving them something. And, and the question is, what are they afraid of? Mm, yeah. And if we can sort of appeal to that fear, that may be better rather than just another debate or a bunch of memes on Facebook. That's just, no one is going to be convinced by that stuff. Right. So, um, and to try to understand, let's say the political opponent better, who's a real person, you know, and not, not the political debates. That's, I don't even watch debates. They're a complete waste of time. I don't I learned nothing. A complete nothing waste changed. of time. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think I'm, I'm hopeful. I have to be honest, not for the immediate future, <laughs> you know, but I'm, I am hopeful. And I, and I think at the end of the day, people will do the right thing. I do. I don't think people are hopelessly corrupt and can't think. I think it'll happen. I agree. 
Uh, Pete, I have uh, something I want to do real quick, and if it doesn't work well, we'll cut it out. Um, but I'd like to uh, play a little game with you now oh, and ask you uh, a couple of questions. All right. So basically, I'm going to bring up some things that may be in the Bible, may not be in the Bible, and I want you to tell me real or fake news. Okay. okay? So <laughs> real oh, or fake news. Okay, here we go. Uh, number one, Nephilim. Real. Interesting. Okay. They're in the Bible. Cool. Um, they're in the Bible. Okay. So you're asking me whether I think they're real or not in reality, not whether they're really in the Bible. Correct. I say fake. Yeah. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Good. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, Moses's Moses Moses mm. burning bush ayahuasca. <sighs> yeah. That's I, the thing is that I. <clears throat> I can't answer it quickly. Here's why. <clears throat> I'm very conscious of my modernist brain taking over too quickly and judging all of reality on the basis of that. Right. I've been sure. trying to train myself. So I, um, it wouldn't bother me if it were fake and it wouldn't surprise me if it were real. And I, there are things like that. I just want to, and I have a feeling I'm going to be saying that for a lot of things and it's not a cop out. It's I'm genuinely honestly telling you I'm smart enough to know that I don't want to say one way or the other because all right, percentages then how sure. high of percentage do you think that was a DMT trip? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Right. Um I'm twenty percent okay. there that it's a trip. Okay, how does that sound? Jonah and the whale. Uh oh, that's a good that's one. Fake. If we're going to use All those right. words, okay. <laughs> but it's a great Jesus. story that's metaphorical, blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah. Jesus turning water into wine. Yeah. Uh, that's. I'm going to put that in the same category as the burning bush because, yeah, I, I actually don't have a problem with miracles of Jesus doing them. I, I don't, they don't, they're not tremendous theological challenges for me. But on the other hand, like walking on the water um, mm -hmm. because there are Old Testament sort of mythic echoes that are happening there, I think. And it might be a way of telling a story or the manna story. I mean, and the, uh, the, the, uh, the feeding of the four and 5,000, there's a manna wilderness motif going on there. So for me, I look at it not like, gee, can I believe in miracles or not? It's, it's more like, what do I think the writer is trying to do there? Right. Mm -hmm. And um and so I guess for me, you know, the water to wine is in that same category. You know, part of the messianic future in the prophets is a bounty of wine and flowing water and things like that. So is that what John is trying to do, or is it something Jesus pulled off? So sorry. You're trying, <laughs> no, you're trying to pin it's an academic into an either or, and dude, <laughs> the answer is always both. You make a you know great that, politician. Right? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. um okay oh, shit. the rapture yeah um oh, shit. yeah to me that's that's more <laughs> fake i know paul talks about it but what does it mean you know and i know tom wright says it's not being caught up in the air and keep going up as you, you sort of meet jesus and come down and rule but that strikes me as more apocalyptic language of antiquity mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm probably on that one. I can 
have more of it. I think there's a theologian by the name of LaHaye that would disagree with you on that one, so, but okay, go ahead. Well, I just, that was a really, <laughs> that was a really big deal for like, that was part of the beginning of my deconstruction was the rapture. Yeah. Uh, because it's definitely not it, like, I've heard that people didn't even know about it like 200 years ago, that it's like truly an American, um, like, it's like Fifel. It's an American <laughs> right. tale. Like it, I mean, it's always been there, but like Ameri- like it wasn't like popularized. Like the Apostle yeah, Paul wasn't closet, thinking so like that. Speak, it just used. Uh, yeah, I, I see what you just well, did Seth there. Came out of the closet too. too. <laughs> that was totally unintentional. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. a Freudian thing, Seth. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, took took it off the shelf. Let me put it that way. And, and yeah, it was a part of the Bible Last... that wasn't really part of like mainstream theology. That's part of the apocalypticism, frankly, of, you know, the 19th century. Well, I, and I've talked to some pastors specifically about this, and they told me that like like a lot of the verses in the New Testament that are used to explain the rapture are actually talking about the future destruction of Jerusalem. Like it was actually something that he was predicting and happened like it's already occurred it's not something that's going to happen it's already occurred or right something to and the end. gospel writers likely writing around the time that that happened right around ad 70 yeah that's i mean that's pretty standard that that's uh, that's always made a lot of sense to me mm. too all right i really appreciate you doing this oh right. yeah, one more last one one more Good. one more uh trump oh, gets another God. four years <laughs> um that's going to be a reality, I think. Yeah, I I think that's likely to happen, in my opinion, because <sighs> I think the, um, yeah, the politicizing of the impeachment hearings was very disturbing to me, and I could see what the Republicans were doing. They're creating a narrative by yelling it loudly, and I don't I don't think the Democrats have done a good job of countering it publicly, and I think yeah. that. I'm I'm thinking about the moderates in the middle who are like they're happy with the political policies of Trump, but they can't stand him as a person. And what are they going to do? Um, but I'm I'm hopeful. I'm not I'm not totally pessimistic at this point. But I think it all depends on whether people who didn't vote last time or are lack vote of better options too. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just yeah, that's, uh, that's why you know what's his name? Oh, go, Bloomberg. Um, yeah, Bloomberg. Yeah, he might have a shot. He's like, he'll go toe-to-toe. He's, he's as arrogant as Trump is. So just go toe-to-toe like that and just, you know, slam him and, and not take any crap. Biden will get eaten alive in a debate. I oh, think yeah. Warren can handle Creepy herself Uncle very well. But I think I think Biden will get eaten alive. Unless there's a good yeah. moderator at the debate, which there won't be. No. So, anyway. <laughs> Thanks for ending on a depressing <laughs> note, guys. This has been so much fun. Back. Like, please don't say that. I'd love to have you back anytime, anytime. Maybe get you and Jared to come on and talk about the podcast sometime. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, we'd yeah. love to do that. Yeah. Um, and I'll say one last thing. Are you familiar with Dan Coke at all? Okay. So, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I've been on this podcast yeah, a couple so he's times. He's kind of yeah. a friend of ours as well, too. And I'm somebody who, you know, he's like my age, younger than me, but I respect him a lot. And I've often said, if you and Dan Koch started a church, then I'd go back to church. So, so oh yeah, no pressure. <laughs> but I'll never right. start a church. I so. probably would never go back to church either. So. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but 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 seriously, like I I definitely do cite a lot of the stuff um, that you've written said uh, as I've had conversations and how I still maybe 
identify with Christianity. I think a lot has to do with some of the works and stuff that you've allowed for um, generations to come to kind of question and still be in that camp. Obviously, you're not, um, it's not your ideas alone. Obviously, you've said that they've been around forever, but but just um, you kind of publicized it. Exactly. The fact that you've been vocal about it. Be that figure for this generation. It's been great. So thank you very much. I appreciate it.